the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Folks, we've been talking about treatments for the Wuhan virus, treatment for what I really prefer to refer to as the CCP virus, because I I think that's the most appropriate title. Um, The president often calls it the China virus or the China plague, and I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that, but I want to be more specific uh, in regards to the CCP, because one of the things I really try to do in my commentary, whether it's on this radio show or when I'm on television or when I'm writing, is I try to differentiate between the amazing Chinese people, the population of China, and the awful and dreadful and terrorist Chinese Communist Party, because, of course, the people of China are the first and foremost victims of the CCP. We Americans and particularly American workers, I would argue, are the, are the second most afflicted people in the world uh, from the abuses of the CCP. But but China, they are the first most afflicted folks. So I, I think it's important for us to make that differentiation. And then those of us who are trying to be very vocal and trying to encourage policies that will free the Chinese people from the CCP, policies from America that will also protect American workers against the CCP, uh, often we are accused by the CCP and some of its propaganda arms of being anti-China or being racist and being somehow anti-Asian. Nothing could be further from the truth. We're trying to liberate uh, the people from of China from that terrible tyranny. And, and somebody who's who's really been promoting these ideas of liberation for a very long time and a, a true expert on China is Stephen Mosher. And I'm very glad to welcome him back to the show. He is the president of the Population Research Institute. He's also a prolific writer. And one of his most important books is The Bully of Asia, Why China dream is the new threat to world order. So, Stephen, welcome back to the show. It's good to be here today. You bet. So, listen, a lot of Americans, let's face it, are in a pretty sour mood right now uh, because of all the situations we've been put in, uh, all of the economic hindrances that have been thrust upon the entire world by China crashing the global economy, all of the health restrictions upon America. There's a lot of division, obviously, within America. It's, It's a tense and sour mood right now, unfortunately, in the country. And I think it's important, though, for Americans to realize uh, that no American caused this situation. The only people that we can blame for this are the Chinese Communist Party. I want to play a tape of Trump. He talked about this two days ago in the Rose Garden. I want to just play a quick snippet of Trump and then get your reaction, please, Stephen. Make no mistake, we hold China fully responsible for concealing the virus and unleashing it upon the world. They could have stopped it. They should have stopped it. Would have been very easy to do at the source when it happened. So, Stephen, your thoughts. Is is Trump being fair there in laying the blame at the Chinese Communist Party? Oh, they actually deserve a lot more blame than the president just laid out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not that he's wrong. He's absolutely right. Uh, They knew about the virus in uh, in the last months of last year. Uh, They did not tell the world. They did not even tell their own people for months. And they deliberately spread it throughout the world. But the the rot goes even deeper than that, Steve, because this thing, as I believe uh, the recently escaped Dr. Yen from Hong Kong, will be telling the FBI uh, in the next few days, This thing was created in a lab. This is an artificial virus Mm -hmm. that was created in the Wuhan Institute of Virology 
If you look at the genetic sequence of the virus, it resembles nothing found in nature. It is cobbled together from uh, viruses found in bats and pangolins, and it is something that we've never seen before. That's why it has been so difficult for us to get a handle on it, uh, because right. it doesn't resemble. It's called a SARS virus. It's not a SARS virus. It's something very different from a SARS virus. So they created it. They let it escape from the lab. And, of course, all the rest is true, that uh, that they then spread it around the world. They then withheld information about treatments so that we were sort of left on our own to find out uh, what this novel coronavirus could do to us. And, of course, it's done devastating things to our economy. Uh, fortunately, it's a lot less lethal than we initially thought. Right. But uh, should we hold China accountable for all of the cost of doing uh, uh, that to the economy, to the American people, to every lost life? Absolutely. Right. And speaking of Dr. Yan, I want to play a tape of her, actually, because I think she's an incredibly brave woman. And this is this is a big development. The fact that we have you know at least one known public defector. There's a lot of talk that there are other defectors you know, that we don't know who are not public yet uh, that the United States are talking to people from the Wuhan lab and other places. Dr. Yan was a virology and immunology expert at the Hong Kong School of Public Health. She left Hong Kong because she feared for her safety. Let's hear her in her own words. Dr. Yan, she was talking to Fox News. Here she is talking about the risks to her staying in Hong Kong and trying to tell the truth. I tell it in Hong Kong. The moment I start to tell it, I will be despaired and killed. No one can hear me. So for this purpose, I would like to go to U.S. and tell the truth of the origins of COVID-19 to the world, to let people understand how terrible how dangerous it is. This is nothing about politics. This is a thing about whether all the human in the world can survive. So that is Dr. Yan, who thankfully did get out. She got out of Hong Kong. She is in the United States. She is here and safe, thankfully. But in case you couldn't hear, she's got a thick accent when she speaks English. She said that she would be disappeared and killed if she stayed in Hong Kong, of all places. And we're going to talk about Hong Kong in the next segment. But of all places, Hong Kong, some, a place that was formerly very free, probably you know, the freest place in all of Asia previously, uh, that, that those, that, those how, that's how severe the risks were to her safety if she were to stay there and tell the truth. Your thoughts about the importance of this defection and others, Stephen? Well, Pam, people need to understand that Dr. Yen was working at the University of Hong Kong, but she was originally from the northern province of Shandong. She was trained in China as a virologist. That means that she has very, very good connections with all the virologists in China and, of course, with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So I believe and she's hinted at this, that she has lots of inside information about how this uh, virus was developed, how it was allowed to spread, who were the first people infected, how many people actually died in China, and, and all the rest. There's a lot more to the story that we don't know. And I believe being originally from China, she has that story. And make no mistake, they are putting tremendous leverage on her colleagues and her friends back in China. Uh, her parents called her. Uh, after she landed in the United States and crying and, and were crying and pleading with her to return to China. Uh, and, of course, she knew that there were Chinese Ministry of State security policemen sitting in the same room with her parents in Yantai in Shandong province, forcing them to make this call, right. forcing them to make the to, to say these things. Her parents may well be under arrest now because the Chinese Communist Party doesn't play games. It takes hostages. And if it can't arrest you, it'll arrest 
your brother, your cousin, your friend, anybody they think they can use as leverage. This is a, a thuggish regime that resembles a, a mafia organization more than a legitimate right. political party. Right. No, I think that's a correct analogy. And she has paid already a very significant personal price. She had to leave her husband. Uh, her husband would not go with her. He uh, himself is a very respected scientist over there. And this is her quote about him. She said, he blamed me, tried to ruin my confidence. He said they would kill all of us. Uh, shocked and hurt. Yan, this is now from a Fox News article, shocked and hurt. Dr. Yan made the decision to leave without him. So, you know, your point that her parents may w- very well be in grave danger because of her truth telling. She had to leave her husband, uh, you know, ruined a marriage, uh, separated a husband and wife. But she believes that the truth is, is important enough to come here. What about your thoughts? There's a lot of talk out there that there are other defectors, uh, do, or even if they're not, if they haven't actually defected, if they're not physically in the United States, that we have other sources. Do you believe that U.S. and Western intelligence are getting to the bottom of this story? Yes, I do. And I, I say that, Steve, because I know that the Chinese people, uh, not the Chinese Communist Party, but ordinary Chinese people, including uh, Chinese scientists and virologists, uh, do not like the Chinese Communist Party. Sure. Especially they dislike Xi Jinping, who has been uh, taking China backward into high Maoism into a new cultural revolution over the last few years. And they would be happy if they could escape China to come out and tell us the truth. I believe that the French also, when they built the Wuhan Institute of Virology high containment lab and, and did the ribbon cutting ceremony in 2017, knowing the French, they probably left behind some listening devices, Steve. So I think right. the French have other sources of intelligence as well. And I'm wondering where the original Batwoman, uh, Dr. Shi Jung Lee, the one who was actually doing the research to genetically enhance these uh, wild viruses to make them lethal to human beings, where is she now? Because she hasn't been seen in public for months. Right. Has she defected? Um, I don't know. But there are others in, in China I know who have criticized the regime and who would escape if they could. Right. I hope I hope all of them have made it to freedom. So, uh, Stephen, I want to ask you about the situation right now in Hong Kong. Um, our common friend Steve Bannon uses the analogy that he says what has happened in Hong Kong in recent weeks and recent months is in some ways analogous to Czechoslovakia in 1938 when the uh, Nazis took over the Sudetenland, effectively annexed a part of Czechoslovakia, that this was just as provocative an action in terms of the CCP's full takeover of Hong Kong. Do you think that that analogy, is that, is that an exaggeration or is that a correct analogy? Is it uh, is it that uh, dire an act of aggression by the CCP? Well, it certainly is in that it brings to mind the, the expansionist tendencies of the, uh, the Nazi regime, which led us into World War II. And I think when you see China uh, moving troops into Hong Kong, which they have done uh, on the sly over the last few months, they've doubled the size of the People's Liberation Army garrison in Hong Kong from 6,000 to about 12,000 or more. They also have troops lined up across the border uh, of the new territories in Shen, the Chinese city of Shenzhen, ready to come in if the unrest continues. And, of course, you, you put that together with the, the fact that there are Chinese naval vessels around the Japanese-held Senkaku Islands. There are Chinese airplanes now circling Taiwan bombers. Uh, there are constant threats being made towards China's southern neighbors in the South China Sea. Uh, and on and on, the list of aggressive actions against Bhutan, against India, even the claim recently that Vladivostok really shouldn't be a Russian city. Uh, it was illegally seized by Russia in 1860, and maybe China might want to take it back someday. I mean, they're right. striking out in all directions, and, and people ought to sit up and pay attention. But, yeah, 
Hong Kong is the tip of the spear. I got to tell you, I, I first saw Hong Kong as a young naval officer uh, when I was on a ship, U.S. Navy ship, visiting there in 1975. Went back to study Hong Kong at the Chinese, Chinese Cantonese at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Learned Chinese there. Lived there for several years. Was back for the turnover in 1997 when China promised a promise. 50 years of freedom in Hong Kong, and now it's broken that promise. Breaks my heart. I've got a lot of friends in Hong Kong. Right. Uh, they deserve better than to be swallowed by the Red Dragon. Right. Well, you know, and to that point, so uh, before I got full-time into politics and media, I spent 25 years on Wall Street, and Hong Kong, during my entire career, was an absolute hub of global capital markets. I mean, Hong Kong was yeah. really the, the gem of Asia in, in a lot of ways, uh, but particularly when it came to business, because it was a place of low taxation, low regulation, a lot of entrepreneurs entrepreneurship. Um, it was really, to me, you know, again, I, I, I use the word over again, it was it was just a gem. I think, you know, along with Singapore, it was the two places in Asia uh, where business just thrived, full of a lot of Westerners and a lot of Western ideas. So it's particularly disappointing, of course. I mean, we hate to see the CCP oppressing people anywhere, but it's particularly disappointing to see them do it to Hong Kong to really ruin what was formerly an amazing story of freedom and prosperity. Yeah, it's one of the freest cities in the world, and now it's going to become one of the most oppressed because the Hong Kong people will not sit silently inside their apartments and watch the takeover. They will be out on the streets again. They will be arrested. I'm very afraid of what's going to happen in, in Hong Kong. It may come to resemble uh, the Tiananmen massacre back on June 4th of 1989. But the reason Hong Kong thrived, of course, Steve, was because it had the rule of law. It had respect for property rights. Right. Contracts there could be signed and they would be abided by. None of that is true in China. There's no rule of law, no respect for property rights. The Communist Party takes whatever it wants. And now it's taken, uh, now it's taken all of Hong Kong. Right. I want to play a tape of President Trump, because I want to talk about what our response should be. Uh, and I think President Trump is directionally getting it right. He's starting to get tough on Hong Kong. Frankly, I'd like to see him get tougher. And I have counseled him that both publicly and privately. But I want to play a, a tape of his recent remarks on Hong Kong and then get your reaction of what U.S. policy should be. Today, I signed legislation and an executive order to hold China accountable for its oppressive actions against the people of Hong Kong. The Hong Kong Autonomy Act, which I signed this afternoon, passed unanimously through Congress. This law gives my administration powerful new tools to hold responsible the individuals and the entities involved in extinguishing Hong Kong's freedom. We've all watched what happened. Not a good situation. Their freedom's been taken away, their rights have been taken away, and with it goes Hong Kong, in my opinion, because it will no longer be able to compete with free markets. A lot of people will be leaving Hong Kong, I suspect. And we're going to do a lot more business because of it, because we just lost one competitor. It's the way it is. We lost it. That's President Trump talking about U.S. response to the Chinese Communist Party's crackdown on Hong Kong. I'm discussing this issue with Stephen Mosher, who is a lifelong expert on China. So, uh, Stephen, is, is, has Trump gone, has the United States gone far enough? You know, in my view, this is a good first step, but I'm not sure if it's enough to deal with the level of the threat that is posed by the CCP in regards to Hong Kong. Your thoughts? Well, I think that uh, we no longer have one country, two systems. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that, that the Chinese Communist Party was going to allow a free Hong Kong to continue for 50 years until uh, 2047. Uh, that means we have one country, one system now, the same system in Hong Kong as in China. Uh, that means if you have one country, you have one central bank. Right. That means that Hong Kong is no longer going to have a separate currency. 
that means I think that the Hong Kong currency will either uh, drastically inflate or it will have to be withdrawn uh, and not recognized as an internationally valid currency anymore. You can't have two central banks. I think that the Chinese Communist Party took over Hong Kong in part uh, because it was a bastion of freedom and a signal to the Chinese people that maybe one day they could enjoy the freedoms the people of Hong Kong enjoyed. The Communist Party obviously couldn't allow that thought to survive in the minds of 1.4 billion Chinese people that they were oppressing. And so they had to suppress freedom in Hong Kong. Uh, but the other thing is, I think they wanted to get their hands on the $400 billion uh, in hard currency mm -hmm. uh, that the uh, Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank is holding. And uh, uh, there is a rumor that that money is already in the coffers of the Central Bank of China right. because China's economy has tanked and their, their uh, exports are sinking and they have huge amounts of national debt. So it may have been partially for economic reasons that they seized Hong sure. Kong, but they're filling the goose that laid the golden egg. Well, of course. This goose right. will no longer lay any more golden eggs, so they get right. the one golden egg. They can pay no some near-term bills, exactly, but they're, they're wrecking the machine, right, the, the, the wondrous machine that was Hong Kong. I want to ask you about this in terms of policy response in the United States. You know, again, I think we need to ratchet things up a bit. And uh, one thing, a proposal out there that to me makes a lot of sense is, is the Chinese Communist Party, let's face it, is a terrorist organization. Uh, it, it acts right. in many ways like terror groups do. Let's brand the leaders of the CCP as terrorists and not allow them to travel. I think that would be massive uh, for them because, of course, they do love to travel all over the world. They love to spend the money that they've stolen all over the world. Let's make it impossible for them to come to the United States, to go to the U.K., to go to Australia. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think we should put a travel ban on uh, on perhaps millions of Communist Party members, not just the leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the mid-level and low-level officials, of course, have been just as rapacious uh, uh, stealing the money of the, people, the Chinese people over the years and have accumulated millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. And, of course, all of them are trying to get that money out of China right. and into safe places like the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, where they have the rule of law and where their mansions and their property will be protected. We shouldn't allow that to happen. Right. Those are all ill-gotten gains. Uh, they're all the result of bribery and corruption. And, and we should not recognize uh, the American pieces that we have handed out in the past. We should simply invalidate them right. for them and their family members. I agree. You know, Stephen, first, before we get to the broader global issue of population and what the trends actually tell us, you know, where the math and demography tell us we're actually headed in terms of population specific to China, uh, what we're really seeing over there in some ways is sterilization and forced abortions that can be really unfortunately characterized correctly as a genocide. Isn't that right? Yeah, uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party finally ended in 2016 its one-child policy towards the Chinese people. That is to say towards the majority Han Chinese population, which is 94 percent of the Chinese population. That policy had been in place since 1980, so it ran for 36 years. It eliminated 400 million people from the Chinese population, which is why China's population, the Han Chinese population, is aging and dying. I was in the operating room when they were forcibly aborting and sterilizing women hmm. back in 1980, a horrific sight, a barbaric procedure. Uh, abortions at seven, eight, and nine months by cesarean section is wow. not something you ever want to watch or even think about. Hmm. But they've stopped the policy in 2016 because their population is aging and dying. But then they restarted it in the minority regions. 
Now the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs in the far west are being subjected to the same child limitations. Uh, women are being forcibly aborted if they have a second or a third child. They're being forced to pay huge fines. They can even be sent away if they refuse sterilization or can't afford to pay the fine, which is many thousands of dollars. They're even sent to that newly established uh, concentration camp system in China uh, where they languish for their sin of refusing uh, to be aborted and sterilized. So the population control program in China is alive and well, only it's not directed towards the Han Chinese. It's directed towards the minority population. What do we call that? Right. The forced abortion and sterilization of a minority is 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 a classic example of genocide. Right. This is a slow rolling genocide of minorities in China. The world needs to wake up and pay attention to it. Yeah, on, you know, unfortunately, it's not an exaggeration to, in many ways, compare the CCP to the Nazi Party. You know, and I, I think that we've got to. Unfortunately, a lot of people in America have been forced to wake up. That might be one of the silver linings to this very dark cloud of the. Wuhan virus and what's happened to our own country. But one of one of the benefits of this terrible situation might be uh, that so many Americans have been forced uh, to to wake up and realize the threat that the yeah. CCP is to the entire world. Now, I want to ask you about population globally, though, not just in relation to China, because there's a new study out from the University of Washington, their Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Uh, and it really it, it's the, the only term I can use to describe it is it's jaw dropping. I mean, it really is in terms of the drop in global fertility. So in 19. 19- 50, the average woman had 4.7 children worldwide in 1950. That number dropped in 2017 to 2.4. So it was almost cut in half by 2017. Uh, and by 2100, uh, the projections now, and we can project demography with a pretty good degree of certainty. You know, this isn't like trying to guess where the stock market's going. <laughs> there's, there's real math here. Um, by 2100, it's going to fall all the way to 1.7. So from in 150 years, from 4.7 children in 1950 per woman to 1.7 in 2100. Isn't the real population problem, Stephen Mosher, going to be that the world soon has too few people? Yeah, I wrote back in the pages of the Wall Street Journal back in 1999, long time ago now, that our long-term problem was not too many people, uh, but too few people. Not too many babies, but too few babies. And that problem has only gotten worse in the last 20 years. You know, all of Europe now, all the way from uh, once Catholic Ireland, all the way to European Russia, all of those countries now have a birth rate that is below replacement. And we're not talking replacement rate fertility is about 2.1 children per woman on average over her reproductive lifetime. But we're not talking, when I say below replacement, I don't mean 1.9 or 1.8. Right. I mean countries like Italy and Spain, they're averaging one child right. uh, per couple over their reproductive no, lifetime. No, it's not just below That's replacement. It's, yeah, it's an implosion. It really is. I, I also read that in Italy and Spain, which, as you mentioned, you know, formerly deeply Catholic countries, uh, now they might be culturally Catholic, but they're certainly not very religiously Catholic. In Italy and Spain, the average child in each of those countries today has a totally vertical family tree, meaning they do not have any siblings. The average child has no siblings, no cousins, no aunts, no uncles. They just have their parents and then their grandparents. When you actually think about that, you know, I think it's really quite sad. But it's more than just sadness, of course, because we think all life is a gift. There are also really very real economic consequences, aren't there, Stephen Mosher? I mean, there's only two ways to grow an economy, more people or more, more productivity. Now, preferably, you have a lot of both, and the United States has for a very, very long time, more people and more productivity. But but that's it. There's no fairy dust. There's not another way to grow an economy. So it's not just a moral issue, uh, but it's also an economic one, isn't it? 
Yeah, when your population starts to age and die, remember people as they go into their retirement years uh, begin to consume more than they produce because they're retired. Right. They're living off money that they've saved. They're living off of Social Security and savings. And that means they're very careful in their expenditures. It's the young people in the economy with their long time horizons who invest for the long term, who start businesses, who, who have, you know, thriving enterprises that hire hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of people. Without young people buying homes and cars, forming families and having children of their own, and economies will grind to a halt. You already see that in Japan. Japan has been now in a demographic recession for about the last quarter century. Their birth rate fell well below replacement uh, 40 years ago, and they're now desperately struggling to keep economic growth going in the face of an aging and dying population. And they've now got people working into their 70s. Uh, right. Just because otherwise the jobs would go begging. Japan is a country now. This is this is a sad uh, statistic, but it's the reality of Japan. Japan is a country now that sells more adult diapers than baby diapers. Uh, that will be true in a lot of countries in the world. Unfortunately, it is already true in Japan. Their population peaked in 2017 at 128 million people. This same University of Washington study by 2100 says Japan is only going to have 53 million people. They're going to lose more than yeah. half of their population in this century. I mean, that's really uh, astounding. Uh, Stephen Mosher, I, I sure appreciate you being here. Where can folks find out more about your work? Well, our website is pop.org, P-O-P dot O-R-G, which is where we put all this demographic stuff and stuff on China. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Stephen W. Mosher. Wonderful. Thank you so much uh, for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership program offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Jerry Boyer of Town Hall Finance for townhall.com. I like to use Google Trends to see what people are looking up on the Internet as a way of getting a sense of what average people are thinking about. I found that searches for the phrase economic depression peaked in late March. Then, in the ensuing weeks, we saw peaks in better than expected in the category of business and industry. Then we saw in early May a strong uptick in searches for economic recovery and then a surge in business-related searches using the phrase largest improvement. This basically tracks with the headlines. We saw scary headlines about the destruction of the economy, but then headlines showing that the U.S. economy is more resilient than given credit for, and then recovery headlines with stats that showed some of the best improvements in decades. Bottom line, we're not doomed. We can handle this. We are handling it. I'm Jerry Boyer. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.